You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 6th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Buona sera. <laughs> welcome back from Italy, Evan. Right, Ev. <laughs> when the morning hits your eye. How was it? Did you sing songs while you were holding hands? Oh, my gosh. They had to stop me from singing songs. I was singing so many Italian songs. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Italy's wonderful country. The weather was perfect. Florence is a beautiful city. All the surrounding, all of Tuscany is wonderful. I cannot speak highly enough of the trip I took. It's a beautiful countryside, isn't it? it but I heard the, I heard the food sucks. <laughs> yeah, I know. You have to stop eating it after like your seventh meal of the day. It's, it's impossible to gorge yourself. You have to it. find <laughs> like a hole in the wall somewhere. You can't go to the big tourist traps. Like Remember that one restaurant we went to when we were in Rome, guys? I had the best meal of my life there. It's unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. Hard to find a bad yeah. meal. I want to go. I was on my honeymoon with my wife and um, we we took a like a bus tour of Rome because we didn't have that many days and we wanted to like quickly go to all of the, the, the main places and it was a really good way to get introduced to the city, right? So then the tour was like you know, a three, four hour thing and then at the end the guy goes, all right, I'll drop you off anywhere you want, everyone on the bus. You know, it was like a 10 person bus. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, nobody, nobody's really saying anything. So I say, take me to the absolute best re- restaurant that is a place that you go, not you know, not a tourist trap. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, so we were right near the Vatican when the tour was over because mm-hmm. we ended there. And he took us about a quarter mile away into this little joint. You walk in. It's like you're in somebody's living room. And these three guys come out. You know, it was one of those deals. They didn't speak <laughs> English at all. That guy told them what to order. We got like a mishmash of all these different things from meatballs to homemade little pizzas to, oh, my God. That was our best meal on the whole trip. Yeah. I'm not surprised at all. In fact, one of the re- one of the best restaurants we ate at was in the town of Vinci, which is uh, just a little town uh, less than an hour outside of Florence. So the reason we went to Vinci— Did you see Leonardo? Uh, well, we didn't see him. Uh, he was—I uh, yeah, don't know where he was. He's tied up at the moment. No. <laughs> buried, somewhere, buried somewhere else. But we did go to his home, his birthplace— Beautiful and fascinating. We went to the Leonardo Museum in Vinci, which was great. And for those who remember uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, Episode 8, Journeys in Space and Time, a lot of the recording that he did was in and around uh, the town of Vinci. And we went and kind of retraced some of those steps that uh, Carl Sagan took when he uh, when he was uh, recording Cosmos. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really cool to see those places. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Uh, uh, right in right there in person. And it, it it's changed, but it hasn't changed so much that you lost sort of the, uh, the, the flavor of it to modern to modernity. It was really, really a great uh, little time capsule in, yeah. in a certain sense. Did you visit cool. any catacombs? Uh, no catacombs, no. Is that a creepy thing to ask? I don't know. (laughs) That's my favorite part of visiting Paris was seeing the catacombs. I've always wanted to go to Rome and see some of the kind of darker side. The only Italian area I've ever visited is Venice, and it's so different from Italy. Mm. The food's so different. Like, the culture is even very Very different. different, So I'm definitely excited to, to go to Italy sometime. I can't wait to pick your brain about it. Yeah, yeah, I can't. I've been twice, and I can't speak highly enough. Yeah, Italy is more of a collection of city states than it is mm-hmm. one 
nation. You know what I mean? I mean obviously, it's a modern nation now, but uh, culturally, it's really, you know, it's Venice and Florence and Rome, et cetera. They have different dialects. I mean, you know, they really are very, very different. Yeah. Some of, some of those dialects are actually mutually unintelligible. Can you imagine you talking to somebody from the south of the United States and like, I have no idea at all what you're saying. Have I you mean, ever? Sure, like some parts of happen, Louisiana. Not like, not like in Italy. Yeah. Cajun but country. it's like that in the UK too. I mean, I have a really, really hard time understanding people with super thick Cockney accents. But that's Don't just you? an ass. That's just an accent. This is a real dialect. This is gotcha. different. It's more, yeah. more, much more than an accent. Our grandmother spoke with a with a Neapolitan dialect, so we learned all of our the names for Italian food. We learned the Neapolitan version. So we grew up eating pasta fazul, money gut was manicotti, money gut, money gut, oh, money gut. gut. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like Steve. You know what's funny is like nobody knows what the hell any of that means unless you're like from this one town in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, carne pizzaiola is carne pizzaiola. Yeah. How weird! That that's that's the dialect though. Yeah, I love funny. it. So I just thought I just you know whatever oh my however God. my grandmother said it. That's what I thought the real name of it was. Yeah. Of course, so, yeah. So many funny. memories. Yeah, <laughs> I remember yeah, watching her was, cooking it up. I mean, it was like yeah. she had a white potato. Cut in half, some some hammered beef that's flat. You know, it's like this really thin beef or steak. Yeah. And then she'd put like tomato paste in there and some onions. And there you go. And that was it. And it tastes way better than it sounds. Trust me. It was like a really, I don't know. I, got, I was awesome. brought up with it. So Well, yeah. the best Italian food mm. really is, I think, very rustic. It doesn't have that many ingredients. It's very simple. A lot of, you know, American, quote, Italian restaurants actually don't make anything close to Italian food. I have a friend from Italy, and he always laughs that if you go to Italy and you ask for fettuccine Alfredo, everybody will be like, who the hell's Alfredo? Like, he's not here. I can't make his sauce. <laughs> it's like not a real thing. <laughs> Is carbonara real? <laughs> All right. Well, welcome back, Evan. We missed you for three episodes. Good to be back. Yes, good to be back. Bob, tell us about this week's Forgotten Superhero of Science. All right. So for this week's Superheroes of Science, I'm covering Bryce Baer, 1929 to 2012. He was a scientist who invented the Baer filter, which is the foundation of nearly all color digital images created today. This guy's impact is so pervasive it was shocking how many digital images are taken every day just just by Ten? cell phones smartphones we're talking we're talking no million? close uh, like like a billion it's it's in the billions Billion. it's, it's it's incredible and this guy had a has a hand in all of it in uh, 1974 bear was working for kodak and he developed and patented the bear filter now this is something we probably most many of us have seen it's a checkerboard pattern of red, greens, and blue pixels on a square grid of of the photo sensor. Have you guys ever zoomed into a um to an image and you see this checkerboard pattern of colors? That's the checkerboard pattern. That's the bear filter. So this grid has twice as many green elements as red or blue, which is supposed to match how the the human eye perceives uh, the the sharpest color images. And over the years, many many different uh, similar patterns have been created, but none of them. Uh, proved better or more popular than Bear's original design. So now I got a bunch of quotes here because this guy has a lot of amazing quotes that people have said about him. For example, uh, uh, Larry Scarf, who's a former chairman of the Camera Phone Image Quality Standards Group, said 99.99% of all digital cameras, cell phones, 
Pocket cameras, webcams, and consumer digital video cameras use the bear pattern to produce color pictures. Some some see this, the filter as an important paradigm shift in the way that we view and create images. Uh, let's see, Steve Sassan, who is co-inventor of the first digital camera, said, Bear's contributions were not only pioneering but prophetic. We weren't even thinking about digital cameras in those days. He was solving a fundamental problem before the problem was even upon us. Ken Perulski's former chief scientist for Kodak's digital camera division said, Bear's invention is the key reason we have cameras that are compact yet provide sharp-looking pictures. So amazing, amazingly prophetic guy, a genius by many different accounts from the people who knew him. So remember Bryce Bear, mention him to your friends, perhaps when discussing demosaicing or adaptive homogeneity directed interpolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Common, yeah, common topic of conversation. Oh, and, and while you were talking about that, Bob, about uh, 21 million new pictures were, uh, were taken around the planet. Holy crap. In about that hey, ninety seconds, did you so. did you really do a little calculation there? Nope. <laughs> or you just throwing it out of your ass? Yeah, it's probably about. You have right. to sound really confident. We all believe you. <laughs> hey, that's what politicians <laughs> yeah. do. Yeah, right. All right, let's want let's move on to some news items. Uh, you guys remember John Mack? John yeah. Mack. Yeah. Oh yes, the sure. Harvard Gosh. psychiatrist who yep. came to the conclusion that some of his patients were actually abducted by aliens. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have another psychiatrist, Richard Gallagher, who might be worse. He's convinced okay. that some of the cases that he's investigated of people who might be mentally ill are, in fact, possessed by demons. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, of course. And he's a Yale trained psychiatrist, so I guess we're even now with Harvard and Yale. See, he's a Yale trained psychiatrist oh, from oh, no. 400 years ago, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, this is your domain. You're directly responsible oh, yeah. for making sure that this guy gets gets on. He you works. work in a neighboring lab. You are just as culpable. He's, he's not, he's not uh, working. You, you practically at, share an not, office with the guy. He's not currently working at Yale. He was just trained at some point at Yale. He, okay. So he wrote an editorial in the Washington Post, which a lot of our listeners obviously saw, and they sent it to us. It's like True Believer 101. He hits every True Believer trope or most of the True Believer tropes that there are, meaning the ways of justifying belief in something that's not scientific. He starts right out with, I was inclined to skepticism, right? The faux skepticism. Mm -hmm. But I was convinced Mm -hmm. by the evidence. (laughs) But always... Always in cases like this, we have somebody defending a paranormal belief or whatever. The evidence is crap. And then it's a series of post hoc excuses and rationalizations for why the evidence is crap, right? That's basically what it amounts to. This is like a big game of name that logical fallacy, right? Reading this guy's article. He essentially said that he was asked to investigate by, by the Catholic Church. He is a Catholic. Cases that they suspected might be genuine demonic possessions to determine whether or not they were mentally ill or maybe genuinely possessed. And he said the vast majority of them were diagnosable with some kind of mental illness, but there were these few cases where things happened that he couldn't explain. And, and therefore, therefore demons, right? So he goes from right. his series of logical fallacies here. First, he confuses, uh, he makes the argument from personal incredulity, right? I couldn't sure. explain it. Therefore, it's not explained. Wrong. 
Therefore, <laughs> it's inexplicable. It's unexplainable. Wrong. Therefore, mm-hmm. it's demons. Wrong. So it's a three logical <laughs> fallacies. Argument for personal credulity, the uh, confusing and unexplained with unexplainable, and then the argument from ignorance. We don't know what this is. Therefore, it's demons. Yeah, we call it the true believer trifecta. Yeah. Or the, uh, what do they call it in the Catholic Church? The Trinity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a trinity of logical fallacies. <laughs> so here, here's the anecdotal evidence that he offers that some of the allegedly possessed people that he investigated displayed hidden knowledge, like telling one right. of the people present, present, you have a secret sin. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, no, wait, way too specific. That is just. What do you mean? Yeah. What, did he, what did he mean? You have a secret him. sin, like a He's sin that they're reading. not even aware yeah. of. No, that no, they're, like they're a sin they're not secret. telling anyone. Yeah, like, like like everyone has, like every human being on the planet. <laughs> yes. So that's, that's, you know, he basically describes really basic cold reading techniques just as applied to, you know, a, a fake demonic possession. That's one of those falsely specific comments. It seems specific once you make the connection just to you, but it really mm-hmm. is sort of a vague thing that could apply to everybody. All right, he says, here's some other evidence. A, this is a quote now. A possessed individual may suddenly, in a type of trance, voice statements of astonishing venom and contempt for religion, while understanding and speaking various foreign languages previously unknown to them. The subject might also exhibit enormous strength or even the extraordinary rare phenomenon of levitation. And then in parentheses, I have not witnessed a levitation myself, but half a dozen people I work with vow that they've seen it in the course of their exorcisms. Oh, that's all I need. There's no video <laughs> evidence of any of this, of course. And the- Joe said his sister's cousin's third brother's <laughs> cousin's <laughs> husband's daughter once saw someone maybe levitate. Right. So the- these are all also completely standard out of the book demonic possession tricks, right? So the whole levitation thing is, you know, if people arch their back, especially if you arch it like violently, you could bounce off the bed mm-hmm. and then people call that levitation. Mm. There's never a video of somebody like <laughs> floating three feet above the bed like in the uh, Exorcist, the movie. Right. That's why it's good to have a Hulu handy. So you, you, can, you can test yeah. it right away to see if someone's really levitating. Just throw the Hulu right. around them. And then speaking various foreign languages, again, very typical – uh, type of claim that's made, but never verified, never, ever verified. So the other question you have to ask is, so what exactly happened? Did they just utter a phrase of gibberish that somebody thought was a foreign language? Or did they say a phrase in a foreign language, but they weren't actually having a conversation in a foreign language? You know, like you could memorize yeah. a phrase of Latin and throw that out there in the middle of your demonic possession act, you know? E pluribus unum. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that doesn't mean that they know the language. Yeah. Uh, yeah so the, the, those are the kind of things where you, the story evolves over time and you get this standard narrative, like the levitation, the speaking in foreign languages, you know, saying they said awful, mean, vicious things. <laughs> like that's evidence <laughs> that they're possessed by a demon. The thing is, I've actually watched dozens and dozens of hours of exorcisms on videotape. I've watched a lot on TV and a lot that were private, that were made available to me, but they were not something that was aired on TV. They are boring as hell. They are, they are. Nothing happens. Yeah. It's not anything like the movies, guys. It's, no. it, it's a lot of people oh, just gosh. kind of standing there looking at someone who's acting completely normal. 
<laughs> or in the cases where you have a mentally ill person who thinks that they're possessed by a demon, they're pretending to be possessed by a demon. And I've joked that I, I've yeah. seen better portrayals at live action role playing games. I mean, it's yeah. just so unconvincing. It's com- it's pathetic. You have to believe that the interesting stuff always happens off camera and that whenever a camera's rolling, suddenly you get these childish, you know, portrayals of what somebody thinks a demonic possession might look like based upon watching, you know, the movies. And like the other thing that was there was this 2020 documentary where they were showing a real life exorcism, and the voiceover is just—I know what you're going to say. Yeah, the voiceover is comical. They're saying, "Oh, they, she displayed superhuman strength because that's part of the narrative." Meanwhile, there's two, literally two little old ladies holding the person down <laughs> without and not seeming to struggle at all. Just so it's just the narrative. They're just relaying the narrative, despite the fact that the evidence does not support it whatsoever. You know. Steve, I remember that scene. Jay, Dylan could beat those two women up. That's how old and frail they were. My three-and-a-half-year-old son could beat the the two women up that were holding down the superhuman strength of the possessed girl. If this is all happening, why do we never catch it on on, uh, camera, especially now with everyone with a cell phone? I mean – well, it's the, the same thing with UFOs, Steve. I mean, there's there's cameras right. in so, every every almost every person's hands today. Here's his answer: yeah. One cannot force these creatures to undergo lab studies or submit to scientific manipulation. They will also go. hardly allow themselves to be easily recorded by video equipment, as skeptics sometimes demand. The official Catholic catechism holds that demons are sentient and possess their own will. They are. As they are fallen angels, they are also craftier than humans. That's how they <laughs> sow confusion and see doubt after all. Nor does the church wish to compromise its sufferer's privacy any more than doctors want to compromise a patient's confidentiality. So oh, this is the whole aliens are more oh, intelligent God. than us. Demons are craftier than us. So, you know, the conspiracy theorists are smarter and have more reset resources. The Bigfoot immune Bigfoot to science can teleport, you know, whatever. Psychic ability doesn't function when there are skeptics in the room. It's a, this is all the special post hoc, yeah, special pleading. This is all special pleading, special pleading. Oh, Steve, remember that? Remember Tons that? Remember that quote, Steve? Yeah. That those, those Satanists, those Satanists are so good that they left no evidence. So, so the lack of evidence was evidence that they are super competent. Yeah. Like, whoa, what universe do you live yeah, in? The exact quote <laughs> was so scary. Listen, these people are master Satanists. The lack of evidence proves <laughs> that they did it. <laughs> oh my god Steve you know what that actually sounds like it came from the Simpsons I know it's, it's a self parody that's why the confidentiality thing seems reasonable at first but you know what we film patients all the time it's like we would like to film you you know in order to document your movement disorder or whatever for teaching purposes for research for you know for documentation purposes you get them to sign a little thing and you use it properly you know you don't dare it on the TV but it's it's evidence um, well, you would think that if somebody was possessed by a demon they would be like hell yeah film this I never want this to happen again learn what's going on yeah, for exactly me. and if they're if they're not <laughs> yeah. in their right mind you get you get uh, someone else, whoever their healthcare provider, their healthcare power of attorney is, or whatever, to their, their yeah. next of kin to give permission, um, if they're not, you know, of sound mind. So that's not really an excuse for why there's no video at all. I have to say one other thing that's only tangentially yeah. related to this actual case is I blogged about this earlier in the week, and guess who showed up in the comments section? 
Dr. Ignor. Yes, Michael Ignor showed up. Oh, hey. Always, oh, my gosh. Always a trip. If you want to see, if you want to read a stunning example of motivated reasoning, read <laughs> read his, his posts. He's, you know, completely ignoring all of the actual feedback that people are giving him. He's good. Yeah, at that. and well, he has his narrative. His narrative is that uh, belief in demons is the same thing as belief in aliens, and that skeptical skeptics and scientists believe in aliens, but they don't believe in demons because they're materialists. Oh. It's their materialist bias, right? So, you know, you could have faith in in religion and God, and de- and you believe in demons because that fits your your worldview, or you believe you're a materialist, and that's just your worldview. And then you believe in aliens. And he, he really forces this analogy between atheist religion and his religion yep. to, a, to an absurd degree. So here I have to give you a quote. He says, you have original sin, global warming, homophobia, Islamophobia, overpopulation, sacraments. And his example of sacraments are abortion, gay marriage, and recycling. What? And <laughs> oh, wow. one of these Evil, things is not like the yeah, other <laughs> redemption, which is multiculturalism, reducing your carbon footprint and angels and demons, aliens. So, <laughs> right. Wow. So we have we wow. re, we recycle as part of our sacrament, apparently. But you can see how he's shoehorning. He has this narrative and he just the facts are just irrelevant. He'll just shoehorn them in. So I'm trying to explain to him the difference between speculating about something that is plausible, like the fact that there might be life elsewhere in the universe versus inventing a, an, an unfalsifiable supernatural belief system that is not based on anything that we know. So somebody said, no, the analogy would be apt if you were a demon speculating about whether these other hells that you know about also had demons in them. That would be a better analogy to humans uh-huh, yeah, right. speculating about whether these other Earth-like planets might also have life on them. Anyway, all oh, logic yeah, is wasted good. on him. Seriously, it's like you, there, he's complete logic has completely left the building. He's got his narrative <laughs> and he's there to push it. So I, it's very entertaining though to read through. If you have you know twenty minutes to kill and you want to read the comments to my blog, the this, the blog post is a psych a psychiatrist falls for exorcism. We're up to 100 comments on it. It's mostly people having fun with Michael Egnor. By the uh, way, Steve, why did you have to use yeah. that picture from The Exorcist that's going to haunt my yeah. dreams now? <laughs> I know. It's creepy. <laughs> it's so scary. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, that movie scared the shit out of me when I was yeah, a kid. It's Linda Blair. In my yeah, mind, I was so scared of that movie. Linda Blair looks extra gross in this I picture. For <laughs> the yeah, time, it was a genuinely scary movie. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Based on a true exorcism. All right, Kara. <laughs> a your, true one. Your mother yes. sells socks in hell. So socks that smell. <laughs> oh, yeah, doesn't she speak Italian? <laughs> Dimmi, why you do this to me? Mamma mia. No, truly, the oh, guy no. really solidified. No, they... <laughs> it's, again, it's one of those interplays between culture and the movies where the movie's yeah. based on culture, but then it solidifies the culture. So that became yeah. the standard demonic possession now you know the levitating right. everything Clo- speaking in other languages close encounters did the same for exactly. aliens yeah. exactly all right kara tell us about fmri scans 
Yes. Okay. So we talk a lot on the show about functional magnetic resonance imaging studies or fMRI studies and how we often have to take the results with a grain of salt. Usually, though, that's because um, the sample sizes of these kinds of studies are really small, mostly because it's really expensive to do them. And that allows for a whole lot of statistical fluctuation. But a whole new problem was recently uncovered. And I think at this point, we're not really talking a grain of salt. We're kind of talking the whole salt mine. So to give a little bit of background, researchers in Sweden and the UK decided that they wanted to test some of the underlying assumptions used in standard fMRI studies. Specifically, these studies rely on software. Um, you know, you, you do an fMRI, you do the scan, and you don't analyze the data point by point by hand. There's a, a software layer in between the scanner and you to comb through the overwhelming amount of data that that scanner produces. And um, what these researchers found does not look good. If you guys remember, we've, like I said, we've talked about fMRI a lot. The way that it works, you get in a scan. Has anybody, have any of you four been scanned before in an fMRI? I not just not. an MRI? No. no. I had an MRI, no. not an fMRI. So I did an fMRI um, maybe a year ago when I was working on a TV show on Al Jazeera America called called techno and it was really intense i was kind of scared at first i remember steve you joking with me that i was gonna freak out in the scanner (laughs) i I, I was proud of myself that i did pretty well but yeah you basically lay on your back they put you into this scanner that only really covers your head and your shoulders but it's very close to you it feels very restrictive and it it works because it surrounds your head with this magnetic field that's also combined with radio waves it's very loud there's all these knocking sounds and as, as opposed to an MRI, which is actually looking at this like nuclear flip in your atoms, um, an fMRI is looking at the hemoglobin in your blood. It reacts differently under this field of um, magnets and radio waves if your blood is oxygen rich or if it's oxygen poor, enough so that you can see a contrast in the data so they can roughly calculate which areas of the brain are active. I'm saying that in quotes, kind of active as compared to background levels. Right. Um, the problem is, though, that most of the analysis is, like I said, actually done by the software. And there are three packages that are commonly used. And specifically, these researchers in Sweden and the UK wanted to look at these software packages. They're called SPM, FSL, and AFNI. And these programs operate generally on two primary levels. So there are a couple of terms that we have to understand. If you're going to be reading about this at all, you'll keep running into these terms. Uh, they divide the 3D space of the mapped brain into these little units called vox. Voxels. So voxel is kind of like a pixel. You know, we, we're comfortable with pixels in bitmap space. Voxels are like little functional units of the uh, three-dimensional space of the mapped brain. Do you know how many and brain cells would be in one voxel? Oh, I don't. How many? About a million. Holy shit. That gives you an idea of the resolution. <laughs> and that's just about. one voxel. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's like a pixel. It's like a three-dimensional pixel. Yeah. Yeah. And we think of them as so high res, but your brain is so much more high res. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. And then second, they scan all of those tiny voxels to find areas of clustered activity. And that's when they can start saying that there's like function happening in that area. Obviously, the researchers don't go through all of these voxels by hand. The software package forms these voxels and then scans all of the voxels and says, okay, all of these voxels that are very close together are all active. We're going to call that a cluster. Um, so so you see these two different levels of analysis, the voxel analysis and the cluster analysis. Can I say one other thing? There's yeah. actually another layer in there that I think is worth pointing out. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's what it's doing is it's looking at the activity of each voxel and it's statistically comparing that activity to the typical pattern 
that an active cluster of cells would have. So when you use you know a brain region is active, the um, oxygenation levels will dip because you're mm-hmm. using up the oxygen. Then they'll increase as you increase blood flow. That peaks at about six seconds. Then it drops again. It goes a little bit below baseline and then back to baseline. So it has a very specific shape to it. And what it's doing is comparing the actual activity of each voxel to the ideal activity that represents an active region. And then it's making a statistical comparison to say how likely is it that that voxel is active. Yeah, so that's, that's a, it's another statistical layer that actually is relevant to this study. And that's based, of course, on, you know, previously collected data that was supposed to be used as these baselines. So, so right, that each exactly. individual patient or subject is not just compared to themselves. They're compared to what is considered quote unquote normal. Um, and so, yeah, so what they decided to do is they took data from previous studies. And this has actually only recently beco- become something that's they're capable of doing. And this is something we'll get to a little bit later. But most fMRI data, especially in the past, was not made public. So it's very hard to replicate. It's very hard to dig into the data. But but more recently, I think there has been kind of an open data movement within science. And so these researchers were able to take the data from previous studies um, that were made available on databases, and, and they looked specifically at 499 different control subjects across studies. So these were control subjects, meaning they shouldn't have had any organized brain behavior. You put one subject in the scanner and you tell them to, uh, I don't know, imagine a fluffy um, puppy dog, and then you put another uh, subject in the standard, and you don't tell them to imagine a fluffy puppy dog. So they're looking at the control data. Anything picked up by the scanner should have been random. Obviously, when you're in there, you can't perfectly make your brain devoid of thought. So maybe you're thinking about your to-do list. Maybe your arm twitches. Of course, you're going to have activation in your brain when those things happen, but it should be super random. You shouldn't see any sort of uh, theme going on within the control groups. They took these 499 subjects and arbitrarily broke the group up into individual groups of 20, and they measured them against each other at 2,880,000 random comparisons. So they did a lot of analyses here, close to 3 million analyses. And what did they find? Well, they expected a false positive rate of 5%. Uh, this is based on standard models. This is pretty common in science. Um, you, 5% false positives. But they found that on certain packages, the false positive rate was calculated as high as 70%. 70% across already published oh studies. Right. When analyzed, they also found larger problems um, in these cluster wise comparisons and in voxel comparisons. And um, one other thing that they found is like, for example, they looked at 241 recent M- uh, fMRI studies and they realized that some 40 percent of those recent fMRI studies didn't correct for doing multiple comparisons. And we've talked about this a lot on the yeah. show. The more comparisons you do, the m- more chance you're going to have. Uh, of a higher error rate and you have to correct for this. This was illustrated beautifully. I wasn't on the show yet. I wonder if you guys studied this. In 2009, a group out of UC Santa Barbara um, did an fMRI on a dead fish. Yeah, the dead salmon study. Yeah, and they found activity and that's because they did so many different correlations that they were able to get those false positives. They beautifully uh, illustrate why you have to correct for that. Yeah, but to be clear, they mm-hmm. deliberately did it wrong and show yeah. that you can manufacture a false positive. When exactly. you do it correctly, it doesn't. So, And this is true of this study as well. Just to be clear, this is not an indictment of the technology of fMRI scans. This is an indictment of how, it just shows that it can be 
abused or misused or if you don't use proper rigorous methodology. And even the numbers that you're giving, I don't know if you're going to get into this layer of detail, like mm-hmm. the 70%, these are all like you pick your parameters. You pick what statistical threshold to use and how many, you know, subjects, et cetera. So if you use, um, more rigorous methods, that false positive rate goes down. And mm-hmm. also you kind of, I think you touched upon this, but I do want to emphasize that they, they looked at two basic ways of analyzing the data, the voxel-wise inference and the cluster-wise yeah. inference. For the voxel-wise inference, it was fine. The actual. Yeah, they found that it was pretty um, standard yeah, across the board. And for cluster-wise, that's where the problem was. And it was very variable depending on exactly how they looked at the data. The 70% is kind of a representative figure, but it's like the, the results are kind of all over the place depending on exactly what process you're using, like how many subjects, what level of, of statistical significance you're choosing, et cetera. But so it, it does really, though, call into question the the cluster wise inference as a method at least within these statistical packages for sure because uh, again what they didn't do is they didn't go back and redo previously published studies what they did is they took data from yes. previously published studies and did new analyses on it and showed that if you do these analyses in a not terribly rigorous way and if you kind of just let the software make the decisions for you and you don't go back in and make the kinds of corrections that are necessary when you're doing fMRI research you can come up with these in incredibly inflated uh, false positives, um, these inflated levels of significance. And there was another wrinkle, and this actually became the headline of a lot of the the stories. To me, it was slightly less interesting, but also kind of uh, worrisome, is that there was a bug in one of the packages. In the AFNI package, there is um, a a software program called 3D Clust Stim, um, and that bug was sitting in that package for 15 years. It was only corrected in May of 2015 while the manuscript was being prepared. Um, and that reduced the size of the image, uh, search for cluster. So it underestimated correction and ended up again inflating significance. So uh, obviously you can read the paper. Hey, what journal is the paper in? Anyone want to guess? Penis. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Always in penis. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of nuanced analyses. They get really into the statistics. You can read it for more details. But by the end of it, basically in the discussion, the authors estimated that some 40,000 studies published using fMRI data over the course of these, um, when were fMRIs first introduced? About 20 in the years. 90s. 20 yeah, years okay. Now. So these 20 years could be either invalid or could have some questions about no. their validity. And the, the worry is basically we can't redo them all. A, a lot of the data is not well, yeah. publicly available. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, like who's going to do that? We've already seen that we're dealing with some replication issues in science. And this is, uh, I, I think, a prime example of why it is so important that before you say scientists know where your arm's going to move before you even think about it or, they or tell when you're lying yeah. yeah or they know you know <laughs> exactly like all the different things that we read it's it's a lot of pop psychology we read out of these fMRI studies fMRI studies show that scientists know this about you and that about you a lot of times we really do have to take that with a grain of salt because a the sample sizes are too small b they're often not replicated and now we know c if we're not using the software correctly and if the software hasn't been, you know, reinforced and, and validated by multiple different um, data analyses, we could be dealing with hugely inflated false positives. So yeah. we could be dealing with seeing activity that's not actually there. 
Which doesn't surprise me at all because, you know, over the years you see these really crazy fMRI studies. I mean, some are – they seem very rigorous and, and, and very good. Others are like, really? That looks yeah. like total crap to me. And this uh, supports that view that it's very easy to generate false positives. This is just more basically showing statistically rigorously what we kind of all knew from looking at a lot of these published studies. This reminds me a lot of the Simonson article, the p-hacking article, where mm-hmm, they said yeah. that you know, if you exploit these researcher degrees of freedom, you could generate false positive results 60% of the time to a 5% level. This is very similar, very similar numbers, in fact, as well. So this is the fMRI version of p-hacking. Yeah. And we definitely need to know about this. This is an excellent sort of self-corrective method, you know, within science. And they said, the re- authors said, yeah, we can't really go back and redo 40,000 studies. But going forward, you know, this is really important to note. that well, yeah, yeah, I'm hoping that this paper gets cited in the method section of almost every fMRI study moving forward. Like, based on uh, research by these Swedish and, and UK scientists, we realized that we needed to go through and ensure that our methods were valid or have another layer of, um, of statistical rigor. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, the Dollar Shave Club. So, guys, apparently the Dollar Shave Club has found out how much I, I really – you know what? Love their product. I hate to say that, but their their razor is awesome. I use it. That's all I use. But the Dollar Shave Club has extended a really awesome offer to listeners of the SGU. They're going to give the Executive Razor to any new members for a month for free, just for buying a tube of the Doctor Carver's Shave Butter, not to be used on bread, by the way. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So this is really a good, you know, time for you to test it out. Hey guys, m- one of my favorite things about this is that this is just so affordable. You could actually use a new razor much more frequently than you do now. Come on, we've all done it. How many times are you in that shower? You're shaving, like you know, I should really just get a new one, but damn, I don't have one, or these are just too e- expensive to do that. But you could just have a, a fresh razor much more frequently with this. You need to take advantage of this special offer today. It's available by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash skeptics. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, Evan, I understand that Juno is at Jupiter. Just arrived a few days ago. Yeah, (laughs) I know. This is going to be one of the top 10 science stories of Mm -hmm. the year, I predict. The accomplishment of the NASA scientists with the spacecraft Juno is is tremendous because they achieved orbit around Jupiter on July 4th. That's just this past Monday. They received their signals from Juno, which is now settling into an orbit around the poles of Jupiter. And Jupiter is currently at a distance of about 540 million miles away from Earth. That is roughly 867 million kilometers. And of course, with any story of space exploration and space missions, especially the ones which venture into the outer planets, these things take years to unfold. And Juno's journey lasted almost five years uh, since its launch on August 5th, 2011 from Cape Canaveral, Florida. Uh, Juno was launched into space aboard an Atlas V rocket and headed for a trajectory to take it just beyond the orbit of Mars, traveling at 78,000 miles per hour. 126,000 kilometers per hour. That's, wait, that's are you fast. sure about that? That's pretty damn fast. Got that from NASA. <laughs> But, Bob, you don't know fast yet because in September oh, of 2012 – oh, well, it's about to get faster. 
You see, the pull of the gravity of the sun took its grasp on Juno and started to hurtle it back on a rendezvous with Earth. And maybe you're thinking, oh no, another metric mix-up or something. It didn't make it to Jupiter. But no, that's not the case at all. This was planned from the beginning. (laughs) And 13 months later, in October of 2013, Juno made a flyby of Earth again came back to within 347 miles of Earth. That's pretty wow. damn close. For a gravitational the assist boost, right? I've got the big Whoosh, boost from the, Earth. It, sh- it sure did. So remember, it's coming at, it's traveling at 78,000 miles per hour. By the time it's heading towards Earth and it gets its boost, now it's heading back out into the solar system again at 93,000 miles per hour. Whoa. Yes, 138,000 kilometers per hour which is the uh, appropriate speed it requires to make it out past the asteroid belt and on to Jupiter. I should note at this time that the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,700 <laughs> Don't tell me the odds. <laughs> so having made it past the asteroid belt, Juno was well on its way to its orbit with Jupiter. And as upon the approach with Jupiter, it fell into, of course, Jupiter's gravity well. So Juno, the spacecraft, sped up even faster. How fast, you ask? Try over 160,000 miles per hour. Whoa, 225,000 kilometers per hour. The uh, fastest speed that any human-made object has ever gone. It's set a brand new record. Wow. That is so fast. Actually, actually, it's too fast because approaching yeah. Jupiter at that speed, that thing's going to fly right by Jupiter. It's never going to achieve an orbit going at that speed. The Juno team, of course, as part of the mission, coordinated an orbital insertion burn. Jay, have you ever had an insertion burn? <laughs> it, it only happens twice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Burned worse the second time. The I love the burn. Uh, the burn is initiated when the spacecraft was at its closest approach to Jupiter. Scheduled to last for 35 minutes. This was critical, very crucial, very precise Uh (laughs) calculation had to be done here, and it had to be perfectly executed. Every other instrument was turned off to prevent any malfunctions that could interfere with the burn, and they had only one shot to get this right. You fail it, and you're going to lose the whole mission, and they got it. They nailed it. They got it to within one second, target within one second of its of its optimum burn target, and that's pretty damn. That's impressive. incredible! So, so amazing! They, Can you imagine? Turn the burners they must have been on, shitting a down. brick. <laughs> Everyone oh, was shitting gosh. a brick. Those thirty five. Those thirty five minutes. I tell Ev, you. In your in your reading of this, though, it sounds to me like was NASA controlling this, or was it all automated? and They were just watching it happen. No, my understanding is that well, it's a combination of obviously the effects of gravity and their calculations, trajectories, and so forth. But also, yes, they had to they had to do uh, send some. Uh, signals to the to the spacecraft and obviously uh, ex- execute the burn and make sure that 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 timing occurred perfectly. Yeah, there's a massive so, time delay though. Yeah, yeah, the telemetry is what it is, right? Because there's such a big time delay. And um, it, it's a 1.7 billion mile journey that the spaceship took. It got its target within one second of where it was supposed to be at a target only tens of kilometers large. It has a very, very narrow point, but <laughs> which it has to target. So it really, it's uh, it's just incredible when these missions go absolutely according to plan and, and, and work successfully like this one has. 
So uh, that's it. But Juno still needs, it's not done. Uh, Juno needs to settle into its final orbit, which will be an altitude of about 4,300 kilometers or 2,600 miles uh, above Jupiter's outermost clouds. And it's going to study the hell out of this planet so much right up close and personal. And we're going to learn as much as we can about it. Uh, in the uh, roughly two years we have to learn about it before the ship goes crashing into Jupiter itself to meet its fiery end. Um, they want to learn why? about how the planet evolved. Did it, what, what's in the core of Jupiter? We still don't know what's, what's in the at core? the core. What's in the core? <laughs> uh, understanding more about the magnetic fields. I have a better understanding of that. Uh, Jupiter's magnetic field is the most powerful magnetic field of all the planets in the solar system. 14 sure. times. The strength of that. Of so Earth's. did you guys see the picture that Juno took of the aurora over uh, the planet's North yeah. Pole? Yeah, yeah, very cool. Oh, yes. That was gorgeous. That was a composite, I'm pretty sure, but even that still. That was definitely a composite, and it yeah. really pissed me off how everybody was publishing it like it was a photograph. I know, but, you know, <laughs> click. Here it is. Another thing, what's Juno mean? Uh, Juno was Jupiter's wife in Roman That's mythology. That's right, Evan, yeah. You think there's a coincidence yeah. here, or, you know? without without question without question hey bob you were it sounded like you were pretty upset about the whole crashing of the uh, spacecraft in yeah what the hell's that about why are Uh, they doing that settle down yeah what i read is that the reason that they're going to do that is because slowly the systems and stuff are going to fail on on the spacecraft and you know one system will go down and then another this instrument will go that'll go i suppose they will eventually lose control at a certain point of what happens to it and chances are i guess it would go into jupiter but to make sure that it doesn't say crash on one of the moons instead and contaminate one of the moons they want to make sure that it meets a a demise that that spares any world of contamination Mm -hmm. by the spacecraft Yeah, but it still doesn't make sense because look how, look at the lifetimes we got out of all these probes, Mar- Mars probes, Voyagers. They're lasting years and years beyond yeah, their, I think their it, planned I think it's date. the environment, Bob. The radiation so intense around Jupiter. Uh, so Okay, that kind of makes sense. All right. Bob, also, how long do you think Cthulhu is going to let that craft orbit his planet? A fortnight. Yeah, that's another good point, Jay. That's probably <laughs> yes. the best point. Wow. Hadn't considered that. All right. To bring it back down to Earth a little bit, Jay... I understand we have reached a milestone, not a good one, in the driverless car technology. Well, yeah. So, yeah, something bad happened. But overall, you know, this is not negative. I'm going to be very positive about this. Joshua Brown, unfortunately, was killed on a Florida highway while in a Tesla Model S with the Tesla autopilot mode on. Did you guys hear about this, you know, the accident? Oh, yeah. It's like the biggest news story of the week. So this Mark... This marks the first fatality yeah. involved. Yeah. In so, well, Jay, what kind of autopilot are we talking about? The Tesla it's, autopilot. It's Tesla's autopilot. I'll get into the details about what it can do. Okay. You know, the story is that a truck crossed in front of Joshua's car, and his his self driving system could not see the truck because it was it's, it was a white truck and it was driving against a very bright sky, so it made the the truck color and the sky Whoa. color so similar that the car didn't see it at all, and the, the cars crashed. And Joshua unfortunately died in that accident. Now the reason, yeah, it's terrible, of course, that somebody died, but we have to look at the statistics already that we have on self driving cars, and I will I will make sure that everyone understands that, that these Tesla vehicles that are on the road are not even considered self driving. These are like driving assist or, you know, auto semi-autonomous, I think is the official term of what the cars are. 
Okay, that makes sense. Um, that means that there's supposed to be a driver at the wheel, and the driver is supposed to be paying attention. And people are, are using these cars. A lot of people are using these cars beyond what Tesla is saying the proper use is, meaning that they're letting the cars do a lot more dr- autonomous driving than the driver should allow them to. But check out these stats. So the, this was the first fatality in 130 million miles of autopilot mode on the Tesla vehicles. Compared to human drivers, this the it's 94 million miles per fatality. So, you know, there there's clearly already a huge benefit to being in a semi-autonomous car. And, you know, this is not a, a fully functioning driverless car. This is, you know, maybe a half half the way there. So I still believe firmly, you know, without, without question that the semi-autonomous cars are much safer. And then when we get to fully autonomous cars, it's going to be, uh, you know, exceptionally safer. And I will, you know, state now that Elon Musk agrees with me. Yeah. Not, we didn't talk, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're already we're already at the point where it's safer than human drivers, and it's only going to get better. Sure, and so crazy. Not yeah, only will this, I mean, not only gosh, will the software get better, but again, and we, I think we actually mentioned this that the dangerous time is going to be when you have the autonomous cars driving on roads with other cars. But it'll be safer when the roads themselves and the and all the vehicles are optimized for autonomous cars, like but, of course, you know, yeah. having reflectors or whatever on vehicles that are optimized for the visual system in the autonomous cars so they don't get lost, you know, against the background. Well, there's a couple of important things to keep in mind here. One, that for every accident that happens, the vehicles get better, right? So even a fatality like, you know, Joshua lost his life, but that data was collected and they figured out, you know, what they need to change. And what happens is, so this incident, this specific incident that took place it's very likely it won't happen again just from this accident. You know, it's the unpredicted mm. things that, that just happen yeah. on their own, that they, they collect the data, they figure out what can they do to fix it, they fix it, and they move on. You know, unlike human behavior, which is, of course, daily subject to your sleep, your mood, are you paying attention, are you on, under the control of any substances, that type of thing. I mean, the, 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 the database of information of – of millions and millions of more autonomous cars getting onto the roads is just going to significantly increase the safety. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Elon said, at some point, this technology will become so advanced that lawmakers will be forced to debate whether or not to outlaw manual driving. And I agree. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah I don't think it's going to happen. I think, you know, well, it just people comes down are going to be too protective of their 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 desire, their right to drive if they want to. I know, but when it just really just doing the math. I mean, clearly that's what he's saying. Is if you do the math, at some point we're going to be having statistics that say, "Hey, you're taking your life into your own hands if you're driving a car." Versus, you know, letting letting one of the dozen companies that has fully functioning automated driving happen. Right. You're just, uh, you know, incredibly safer in this car. Yeah, but that's premised on people being reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, how about this, guys? How about outlawing something where if you want to drive your car, you can, but the car will have the option or, or the or the mandatory uh, ability to take over at any time if you're doing something so foolhardy that an accident is imminent. Yeah, yeah, they have. That's interesting. The, a car company uh, is coming out with that, like that type of takeover assist. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I agree, Bob. We're going to see all this. All these different variations are going to come and go, and I think we'll we will. 
eventually just settle on the fully autonomous thing. It's going to be relatively inexpensive once everyone buys it. You know, it's funny, this article that I was reading, one of the articles I read was kind of manufacturing this whole debate about, oh, yeah, you know, so many people are, you know, there's all this intrigue about now are they safe and all that. And I don't, you know, Steve and I talked about it. I agree with what Steve said. I don't agree, you know, that there's this huge debate. Like it's the technologies is coming very quickly. We'll have it within a few years. There'll be there'll be self-driving cars on the road very, very soon. There's already self-driving tractor trailer trucks in the UK. The safety records of these vehicles are unquestionably going to be safer and you'd be crazy not to get your kids into a self-driving car at some point. It's likely that uh, your insurance will be a lot higher if you insist on driving the car yourself. Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. That'll be a huge, huge motivation. Probably a, motivation. You'll have to have a whole separate yeah, ca- uh, policy and a separate license and all of that kind of stuff. Jay, get us up to date on who's that noisy. Any guesses? Mm. No good ones. Yeah. That is something called the Rossby whistle. And it's actually, I guess, a kind of whistling sound that the Caribbean Sea makes when the water rushes through a part of where the ocean is where it narrows. Hmm. And it it actually sends, it's a a vibration that takes 120 days for the wave to bounce back and forth. Huh. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? So it's described like this. When the waves strike the western boundary of the basin, they die out and reappear at the eastern edge. And the phenomenon flashily named the Rossi wormhole or the, like I said, the the Rossi whistle was first described several years back. And now scientists know that the waves of certain shapes and sizes will resonate when they hit the western wall. So that's, that is a recording of the, that whistling sound that the Caribbean ocean makes. Hmm. Nice. Anybody guess Hmm. that? Absolutely not. Oh, um, yeah. The best guess that I got was from a uh, was from Mike in Paso Robles. Mike from California said, uh, "My guess is that it is the explosion sound from an Intellivision console game. I don't remember the game." <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. That's awesome. <laughs> I know what he's talking about, though. I do too. Yeah. Isn't that funny? I kind of yeah. that was slightly familiar. So anyway, pretty interesting. You know, this, the ocean makes a ton of sounds, and you know, just the fact that the water is rushing through this narrowing in the Caribbean Ocean makes this noise. It, it makes this kind of whistly noise. So the new yeah. noisy for this week. Any guesses? Let's see. Oh, you guys would have been awesome if you could guess, but I didn't play it yet. Oh, yeah, well. That, <laughs> yeah, it usually helps. Yeah, I thought this one was really cool. There'll be some something about it I think that's slightly familiar. What could it be? Definitely a Doppler shift in there. Okay, that's yeah. that. I will confirm that you did hear a Doppler shift in there. Cool. It's like a, a, a robot lizard. Wow, Kara, you're on fire. No, you're completely <laughs> lost. I, was, I thought it was Wiley Coyote on one of those hand driven railroad carts. <laughs> going, going really fast. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's amazing. This noisy was sent in by a listener named Dave Aguilar. Dave Aguilar. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Dave. Thank you. So, guys, you know, make a guess. Send me an email at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. And go to the SGU Facebook page. Why not? We got a million likes on there. We have a really good science and kind of a geek culture Facebook page. 
You know, it's probably just Aguilar, right? Aguilar. Listen, I'm talking. I, I said, <laughs> not a lot of Aguilars up there in not, Connecticut. It's not what's the word. It's who's that noisy, okay? It is probably Aguilar. Anyway, listen. Hi, Dave. Bottom line is, thank you, and send me in your ideas, and send me in your guesses. Good luck. Well, Carrie, it is time for What's the Word. Ooh, what's the word? The word this week is a fun, fun one, and I know you like it, right? Steve. Yeah, it's a great segment. I love this segment. So when we talk <laughs> in each other's segments, it's even funner. You know what this <laughs> word, the word of the week, Steve, what? is delicious apple. <laughs> Get to the core. Okay. Is it red um, delicious? The word this week is a really fun one. Uh, I know, Steve, that you love this word. I read this word all the time, and the most recent time that I came across it was just two nights ago when I was reading uh, the next chapter in Oliver Sacks' Hallucinations, which I'm finally getting around to read. Um, and so the word is paroxysmal. Paroxysmal. Or paroxysmal. So it's spelled P-A-R-O-X-Y-S-M-A-L. And it's actually an adjective from the noun paroxysm. So in medicine, a paroxysm is a sudden fit or an attack or an increase of disease symptoms like convulsions, coughing, maybe pain. And they often recur. In a literary sense, we may hear it being used to describe emotion, like a paroxysm of emotion would be a violent outburst. I read this all the time because I read a lot of clinical and medical nonfiction. Steve, how often do you use this word in practice? All the time. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and it's, it's such a mouthful. <laughs> it's such a not rolling off the tongue word, but it's one of those handful of words we talk about on the show where I read it all the time and I've never really needed to say it out loud until now. And that's when it always hits you like, how the freak do you pronounce this? Um, I love it though. It comes from the Greek paroxynine uh, or paroxynine, meaning to stimulate or exasperate. It's a joining of the two root words are para, meaning beyond, and the Greek oxynine, which means to sharpen. That comes from the root word oxy, meaning sharp. That's also the root in the word oxygen. Um, its first documented usage in English was from the 15th century. But prior to that, it was translated into French and medieval Latin before that dates back to the 13th century. It always has had the medical meaning. And only in within like the last century or two did we start to see it used in a um, more literary sense. That's one of those words that's not just part of my vocabulary. Like I would lose total sense of whether or not people understood what that word means. Yeah. Because we use it all I, the time because, you know, the time course of symptoms and illness is critical to the diagnosis. And so we have lots of terms that we use to describe, you know, how things change over time, like relapsing, remitting, et cetera. And paroxysmal is just one of those words that we use. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Just a quick correction this week. Number of you wrote in. To <laughs> That's probably like the <laughs> most corrections we've ever had. <laughs> no, I don't think so, but it was up there. It definitely cracked maybe the definitely the most corrections I've ever had. Yeah, maybe you ever read. So, Kara, you you were talking about uh, the the electronic airplane. Yes, and the NASA's uh, experimental airplane. Yes, X, X plane. One of the advantages of that is is that it would replace more toxic airplane fuel but at some point you said jet fuel when you mm -hmm. when you meant to refer, refer to actually what you meant to refer to was was avgas or yeah. aviation gas mm. as opposed to mogas which is motor gas yeah cuz avgas is still leaded 
but some jet fuel is, is some not leaded. Yeah. Some avgas. Is, see, this is like I'm already starting. Some avgas is still leaded. I called it jet fuel. I did say at the beginning, I know nothing about airplanes. <laughs> and in my mind, I assume jet fuel is just what you call all of the fuel that you put in planes and jets. Yeah. But I guess I was wrong. Yeah, well, you, you know, know it's <laughs> always more complicated than that. Yeah. So jet fuel is uh, either it's unleaded kerosene or is naphtha kerosene blend. Is it jet A1 and jet B fuel? Naphtha, like naphthalene? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, see, that's toxic, too. <laughs> it's actually, I was reading about this, there's like a thousand different chemicals in there. One thousand chemicals, primarily hydrocarbons mm-hmm. um, and additives. Why does it have to have so much? I mean, why, why is it so complicated? I think just, you know, in it's the manufacturer, you get a lot of different kinds of hydrocarbons, you know. Um, it's not just one purified molecule. And avgas is basically gasoline, and it's it, a lot of it is leaded because um, you know they took the lead out of gasoline so that it was less toxic. But the lead is there to make it more stable uh, and to reduce mm-hmm. knocking. And for airplanes, stability is is more important. I guess it's actually in the form of tetraethyl lead, hmm. uh, which is a highly toxic substance, um, was removed from automobiles, but is still used in some formulations of avgas. And of course, we are talking about a plane that can only fly for about an hour. Yeah. So it it may be the case that they would be using avgas for these kinds of planes. I mean, yeah, you know, is, obviously this is for planes flying with an internal combustion engine. Yeah. yeah. Not for jets. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But regardless, it will be electric. Yeah. So we don't have to worry about that. And then we did get some emails too about, oh, it's not really carbon neutral or, or emissions free because you've got to think about making the engine. And I was like, okay, I think when we say things are emissions free, we're talking about what comes out of the tailpipe. We're not talking about it being carbon neutral or carbon negative. Yeah, because so obviously the energy there's a coming lot of, from that you're recharging exactly. The battery from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The energy comes from somewhere. It could be solar. If anybody is good at putting solar panels on things that fly, it's NASA. We know that. Yeah, that's true. But, um, you know, who knows? But yes, emissions free meaning that it would be an electric plane and wouldn't have a combustion engine at all. There wouldn't be any emissions at the tailpipe. All right. Well, guys, let's move on to science or fiction. Oh, boy. Here we go. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items who are facts, two real, and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Three interesting items this week. An eclectic mix of science items. <laughs> are you ready? Of course. Uh-huh. Uh, item number one. A new study finds that in the U.S., those classified as poor consumed more health care than the middle class or the wealthy. Item number two, astronomers have discovered water clouds in the atmosphere of a brown dwarf, the first such discovery. And item number three, researchers have successfully bred a domesticated rat that, in their study, never bit a human handler. Evan, you've been away for a few weeks, so you get to go first. A new study finding in the U.S. those classified as poor consumed more health care than the middle class or the wealthy. All right. Well, this one's uh, just about the numbers. You have to know what your percentages are of poor versus middle class versus wealthy and then just Okay, so let me clarify, Evan. This is not like the poor as a group spend more than the middle class as a group. It's that people who are poor are spending more on their oh. health care than people who are middle class 
or people at who the individual are wealthy. Level. Oh, just, oh, oh, okay. All you're right. just comparing individuals here, not as a group. Okay, thank you. I do appreciate so it does, that. So it's independent of the number of people that they would classify in each group. All right. Well, the U.S. has gone through some changes with their health care system in recent years. I'm sure we all know about that. It's called Obamacare or the, or the uh, American Care Act, the ACA. Um, Affordable, Affordable Care, care Affordable Act. Care. Thank you very much. And yeah. uh, as such, uh, as a result of that, uh, people's uh, habits of going to the doctors has also changed in accordance to that. And I think as a result of that, that you are seeing an increase of people uh, who would be considered poor going to the doctors because they perhaps either couldn't afford it before, it was unattainable in some way, and therefore they're making use of the uh, these ben- these health benefits that are now available to them. So I think that one's going to turn out to be true. Um, the next one, astronomers have discovered water clouds in the atmosphere of a brown dwarf. Uh, boy, I wish I knew more about uh, those uh, brown dwarf stars to uh, <laughs> to really uh, understand how and might, why there might be water clouds in the atmosphere of these things. Um, gee whiz. That, wow, that's a... I really feel for you, man. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, how? How is that possible? I have, I really don't understand that at all. I'm going to think that that one might be fiction. But moving on to the last one, researchers have successfully bred a domesticated rat that in their study never bit a human handler. That is true because they bred the domesticated rat without a mouth. It was impossible for it to have <laughs> bit a human handler. So that one's, that one's a piece of cake. Um, well, <laughs> it's either the brown dwarf or the rat. Um, hmm. She was good one. I'll say that the rat one, domesticated rat, never bit a human hand. I think that one's going to be the fiction. Okay, Jay. All right. So uh, I'll take these in reverse order. Uh, the one about the the domesticated rat. Why not? Why couldn't you domesticate a rat? The domestication process means you're selectively breeding the animal to get traits that you like. Um, so I, I have absolutely no reason to think that they couldn't make a rat that's tame. Okay, done. This one about discovering water clouds in the atmosphere of a brown dwarf. Yeah, so uh, while Evan was talking about this, I was just running through the, my head the idea that, like, what if a, what if water was introduced into a sun and then what would happen to that water? Like, would it be pushed away or would it just stay you know, in, in like the quote unquote atmosphere of the sun, like what would happen? Like, you know, I know that there's, there's, there's radiation coming off of the sun, you know, like the sun is emitting um, energy, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it would be pushing stuff away from itself. So maybe it's just permanent, you know, water vapor or whatever, moving around on some certain layer at some certain altitude above the sun without any real thing pushing it out. Yeah, it's it's completely superheated and all that, but would, would anything actually move it away from the sun? I just don't know. It's such a weird, awesome, provocative idea, but I, I, I'm just trying to make sense of that. Anyway, a uh, new study finds this whole thing about the, uh, the... Yeah, this is the one that I initially just thought seemed really wrong, and that's because the poor, saying here, the poor consume more health care than the middle class or the wealthy. I would think it would be the exact opposite, that they consumed less health care since they're... They don't actually have, you know, I think it's implying here that poor people might not have insurance or have access to health care like the middle class would and the wealthy would. 
um, you know, most middle class and wealthy people have, you know, some type of healthcare plan either provided by their employer or whatever. Um, and the wealthy can get the absolute best care of anything that they want, you know, if they, if it's not within their insurance and they'll just pay for it out of pocket. But the poor, poor, poor people might not have either of those options. So they would get less. So I think this one is a fiction. That's it. Okay, Kara? I'm going to go backward, too, because I think that um, the last item that you mentioned seems the most reasonable to me. Researchers have successfully bred a domesticated rat that in their study never bit a human handler. It doesn't say it can't bite. It doesn't say it won't bite. It just says uh, in within their study, they never got bit. I never got bit by a mouse in all the years that I did uh, animal research with my mice, so... Uh, seems likely that you could breed a rat that's tame. So I'm going to say that that one is science. Astronomers have discovered water clouds in the atmosphere of a brown dwarf. The first such discovery, I literally have no idea. Not, I have no opinion, no idea. So we'll, we'll put that one on the shelf. And a new study finds that in the U.S., specifically in the U.S., those classified as poor consume more health care than the middle class or the wealthy. Something tells me that the middle class i don't know it's it's confusing because this is one of the ones that could go one of two ways either we could see that the poor consume more health care um because we do see a lot of things that are correlated with poverty like a lot of um medical problems that are correlated with poverty but i think on the flip side of that you also see less strict um what's the word i'm looking for like like regimens aren't um stuck to as strictly as he adhered yes like you see less um adherence to uh follow-up appointments and to things like that oftentimes um with individuals who are impoverished because maybe they're homeless they're living on the street maybe they you know can't leave their job because they're working long hours and it's harder for them to ask for time off so this could be one of of two things but um I don't know. I think I'm going to GWJ and say that this is the fiction and that actually people with more money tend to utilize the healthcare service system more, which is not a good thing. And we need to figure out how to fix it. And Bob, let's see. I'll start with the, with the first one about healthcare. On the surface, it makes, it doesn't make sense. And I agree with everyone, but I think that's, that's the rub. I think there's some sneaky little thing going on here. They don't have primary care doctors. Maybe they go to the ER, which maybe is more expensive. So, but I think it's still too obvious. Also, let's go to the second one, water clouds. Um, so guys, the guys, this is not a star. This is a failed star. It's basically a huge Jupiter, maybe 10 times the mass of Jupiter. And they can get surprisingly, they can get surprisingly huge. cool. Um, so I could definitely see water clouds, uh, in, on, in the, the atmosphere of a brown dwarf. So that kind of makes sense. Um, the third one, domesticated rat. Um, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go with this one because, Jay, and yeah, my first thought was, yes, you, you put selective pressure on the breeding rats, you find the, the most docile rats, you breed them, and yeah, that totally makes sense, and maybe that's exactly what they did, and I'm completely wrong. But, I think perhaps that some animals are not domesticatable. I mean, could you domesticate, uh, a cougar? I don't think so. Uh, like, well, why? Why? I, I just enough time. Well, maybe yeah, but uh, we've had a lot of time with the cat. I, I, I think there are there the are Jaguar. certain wild animals. Now I'm just riffing here. I think there may be certain animals that you just really cannot domesticate easily, or it would just take too long, or there's just something about them that you can't domesticate. Well, yeah, but th- Bob, those disclaimers are, are ridiculous. Easily or too long. I mean, it takes as long as it takes, but it's not, I don't think there's any animal. 
you know, any mammal, let's say, that is that, that is untrainable. Um, you got to be able I'd, to selectively. True, breed, I but mean. I, I can't. I, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. I think I think the the uh, the healthcare one is too obvious. It's too easy of a choice, and I think there's something tricky about this domestication one, where it's they are just very very resistant to uh, to domestication. So for so I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with a domesticated rat as fiction. Okay. Yeah. A lot of chatter going on over there. <laughs> yeah, we're table talking like crazy. This cheating. Week. All right. <laughs> so you all agree on the middle one, right? So we'll start we there. Agree on nothing. Bob and Evan went for the rat, and Jay and Kara went for the healthcare, right? So you all agree that astronomers have discovered water clouds in the atmosphere of a brown dwarf, the first such discovery. You all think that one is science, and that one. Is science. science? Yay! Okay, water in a star. It's not a star. It's a, it's not a star. It's a failed planet. Well, okay, it's a. Bob is correct. It is just a. It is a planet. It's like a big, big Jovian, but like right on the edge of being big enough to be a star. So it's called a failed star, obviously because it doesn't quite get big enough to form a star. It tried. This is the a brown dwarf that is seven point two light years from Earth. Very close. Oh. Whoa! Wise zero eight five five is its designation. Oh, we've heard of Wise. Yeah. It is the coldest object known outside of our solar system. So it's in other words, wow. it's barely generating enough infrared. Uh, infrared yeah. So that we can see it. And because it's generating its own spectrum there, we can look at the, uh, look at that light and look at its absorption lines, look at its spectra, spectroscopy and tell what's in the atmosphere. And, and astronomers did just that, uh, and found that, uh, it, there's a lot of water, either water vapor or water ice in clouds in the atmosphere of this, uh, of this brown dwarf. And it's the first time this was seen in a brown dwarf, probably because this is so close and it's so cold, right. but it's still, you know, shining. The, its temperature is 250 Kelvin or about 10, minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Burr. Jupiter is 130 Kelvin by comparison. So it's warmer than, than Jupiter, but still very cold for something outside the solar system. Now, it's not the first exo world to have water found in their spectra. There are some hot Jupiters. You know that we, we discovered using the transit method, and when we look at a, observe a planet with the transit method, or we're just looking at the light from its parent star, but we can look at the light that passes through the atmosphere of the world as it's passing in front of the star, and we could see some absorption lines there. So we have seen water in some hot Jupiter exoplanets. This isn't the first time we've detected we've detected water outside of our solar system, but it is the first time in a brown dwarf. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, literally. Let's go back to number one. A new study finds that in the U.S., those classified as poor consumed more health care than the middle class or the wealthy. Jay and Kara, you think this one is the fiction. This is interesting because you can sort of conceptualize this in a few different ways. Is what's dominant here? Is it the fact that the poor are not as healthy? They actually require more health care? Uh, is it that they're less efficient in their consumption of healthcare? As Bob said, they go to the ER for problems uh, that other people would go to a primary care doctor for. Or is it the fact that people with more money spend more money on healthcare? You know, do you have disposable income? You're going to you know, buy more healthcare. So you could kind of make an argument either way. However, this one is hmm? the fiction. Oh, Mother- okay. Yeah! Oh. <laughs> now... Up until 2004. Oh wait, I got it right. I was right. You got it right. Yes, yes, yes you <laughs> I know. Wow. So I, this, I would I would rather lose and know that I lose. 
1965, what happened in 1965? The, uh, I, t- I, turned, we got, well, uh, I turned two. No, no uh, the, we got the, the uh, war against poverty. No, oh, where where asylums who, closed? Who, or was no. that cares? The Board of Education was founded. Medicare and Medicaid. Oh, oh yes. yeah, yeah, Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare is a help, basically government sponsored health insurance for the elderly and Medicaid for the poor. So that essentially dramatically increased the consumption of healthcare because you make a lot of money available and people are going to use it. So that. From ni- by 1977, if you compare compare these groups, uh, you know, basically dividing people up into poor, middle class, and, and wealthy, the poor were actually the largest consumer of healthcare um, of the three groups uh, because they, they they had it available, and because they are not as healthy, you know, as middle class and wealthy people. So uh, there's a, you know, a negative correlation between health and socioeconomic status. However, that pattern has now reversed since 2004. Uh, and now the, the wealthy are you know, spend the most money on health care, followed by middle class, followed by the poor. Hmm. Not exactly sure why that is, but the speculation is that, that health care consumption patterns have been adjusting in the last 10 or so years. Uh, in a couple of ways, it, the rate of increase of healthcare spending has decreased, the, which is good. Uh, there's a spending slowdown that they're calling it. It's still increasing, just not as quickly as it was previously. And part of that is increasing deductibles and copays. And copays and deductibles discourage healthcare use, especially if you don't have a lot of disposable income. So the rate of increased use of healthcare has been greater among the wealthy and Less among the poor because the poor can't afford the copays and the higher deductibles, and it's actually the lines have crossed. And now, even though they're not as, even though they are sicker, they're use the, the poor are using less healthcare. Again, not it's hard from one study to say exactly why, but the authors believe it. it at least one factor is the increasing copays and deductibles. Mm. So yeah, <sighs> that is that is unfortunate because it means people who need healthcare aren't using it, aren't getting it because they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. That means that researchers have successfully bred a domesticated rat that in their study never bit a human handler is science. And yeah, <laughs> there is, Kara's right, there is a literature on domestication. Have you guys read about the Russian fennec fox? No. Yeah. yeah. Their floppy ears and their waggy tails are so cute. They are adorable. (laughs) So, and Mm -hmm. these researchers did basically the same thing. So the researchers that were studying the fox bred two populations. One population they bred to be as mean and aggressive and nasty as possible. And the other population they bred to be as as kind and as sweet and as gentle as possible. And they, they, so they bred after decades, you know, 30 years or so of doing this, they had a population of fox that is totally domesticated, you know, with floppy ears. And there's other features that go along with the, with the demeanor, which is that's just because these genes are next to each other, you know, so they're, you're select, you're sort of co-selecting for these genes. So they get certain features. So they essentially, the, the current researchers did the same exact thing in the rat. They bred two populations. They bred one population that were they every generation they selected for the tamest rats. And then the other population they selected for the most aggressive rats. So now they have two populations of rats. One is completely tame and never bites anybody. You can handle it as a pet, you know, and have no fear that it will bite you. And the other strain 
is like nasty, evil rats that will bite you hard. They bite more <laughs> often and they bite harder than normal rats. Uh, they're very, very aggressive. They think that essentially it's related to their stress response. You know, under when they feel threatened or under stress, that's they bite. That's what they do as a defense mechanism. And it's just a matter of how hair trigger they have that on. The threshold, you know? yeah. Also, the, the, in all the populations, the female rats are more aggressive than the male rats. And they just think that's hormonal uh, and mm. maybe related to the fact that females need to defend their young. And so they're more fierce when threatened. But yeah, so there's a domesticated rat that won't bite you. <laughs> Jay and Evan, we know somebody uh, who had a rat as a pet when they were younger. Yes, we do. A friend Chris, of ours. Yeah, a friend and, Kristen. Yeah. And she ah. would like – she would take the rat to school hidden in her hair. She would <laughs> like, uh, put what? it on yeah. her shoulder and just sort of c- cover it up with her hair. And the thing would poke its head out of its, her hair every now and then. Uh, oh, my yeah, she God. she would just have it with her in school all day. I, she wasn't concerned about it bolting or uh, – In her she's hair? So funny. It was her pet. Uh, yeah. It was her pet. Wow. All right. Mm. Good job, Jay and Kara. Yay, Kara. Yay. Uh, well, Bob and I are just getting back into the swing of things here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. At least I knew what a f- brown dwarf was. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> okay, Bob. Evan, you have a next for us. Yes, I do. Love you, man. <laughs> Jay didn't know either. That's okay. The universe is probably littered with the one-planet graves of cultures which made the sensible economic decision that there's no good reason to go into space, each discovered, studied, and remembered by the ones who made the irrational decision. That is a quote from Randall Monroe. And we know Randall. Uh, yep. He is the... Uh, he's a cartoonist, author, and creator of the webcomic XKCD. Yep, very clever. Yeah, very clever. Wonderful comic. Used yeah, to they, work, he used to work at NASA, mm-hmm. uh, but when NASA didn't renew his contract, he started to go full-time into comic work, and sort of the rest is history. Yeah, oh, it's brilliant. Some of his comics are downright brilliant. Because he totally gets not only geek culture, but science and, the, and a lot of the logic you know, uh, of scientists, etc. So he will... Just capture these uh, thought processes, you know, just mm-hmm. capture the essence of something in such a way. Everyone has like their favorite XKCD cartoon, you know. Definitely. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank Thanks, you, Steve. Hi. And, uh, and welcome back, Evan. Thank you very much. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.